May I speak in the name of our living and loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The man in this picture is someone who had a profound effect on my own journey of faith. I wonder if anyone recognizes who it is. It's not my granddad. The the man is Metropolitan Anthony. Um, He was a remarkable man who lived from 1914 to 2003. He worked as a surgeon in the French Resistance during World War II and was ordained soon after as a priest in the Russian Orthodox Church. He served as a bishop for 46 years, including for many of those as the Metropolitan Archbishop for the Russian Orthodox Church in Great Britain. For 11 years, he also had oversight of the Moscow Patriarchate for the whole of Western Europe. In terms of church status within his denomination, it could not be much higher. And yet, Father Anthony, as he preferred to be called, was a man of deep humility who lived a life of simplicity as a monk and a priest. He lived, in fact, in a bedsit inside his cathedral church at Ennismore Gardens in London. He was a man defined by prayer and worship and not by the high status of his office. Father Anthony was first and foremost a priest, and that call took priority over anything else demanded of him by the positions he held. I had the privilege of meeting him on several occasions, one of which was in a one-to-one on the day in 1991 when my father suffered a heart attack that was to prove fatal just a few days later. I was a student at the Church Army College in Blackheath where Father Anthony was leading a quiet day. I spoke with him shortly after receiving news about my father's heart attack just before travelling to South Wales to be with him. While I cannot remember the exact words that he said to me, at a much deeper level I recall being in the presence of a holy man and held within the compassion and prayer of one who walked closely with the Lord. I was profoundly moved and strengthened for what lay ahead through the half an hour or so that I spent with Father Anthony. On an earlier occasion, in 1984, I was church warden at St. Stephen's in my hometown of Newport. We were celebrating our centenary and were thrilled when Father Anthony agreed to come and preach at a service of solemn evensong to mark the occasion. The vicar and I met him from the railway station, where he appeared on the platform in a somewhat threadbare cassock and cloak, and we took him back to St. Stephen's for the service. The same weekend, The governing body of the church in Wales was meeting at Lampeter, but the presence of Metropolitan Antony at our church was deemed of such importance that the then Archbishop of Wales left early to ensure that he was able to attend the centenary service. The Archbishop was a commanding figure and very much a prince-bishop. The authority of his office was certainly never in doubt and exercised to its full extent. After the service, there was a small reception at the vicarage before Father Anthony caught his train back to London on that same evening, so people made their way across the road for refreshments. Into the living room of the vicarage came the Archbishop of Wales, and, as usual, everyone stood up 
He looked around for Father Anthony, but he was not there. Instead, he was in the kitchen with his threadbare cassock sleeves rolled up, helping with the washing up and chatting with the women who had prepared the refreshments. Only with some difficulty did we manage to get him to put down the dishcloth and come back into the living room to converse with the Archbishop. Status certainly cut very little ice with Father Anthony. The women in the kitchen were no less important than the Archbishop of Wales. It was almost an enacted parable. It was Father Anthony who came to mind when I began to reflect on this morning's readings, somewhat strangely perhaps, because he could not be further away from the example given by Jesus in the Gospel story of a self-righteous religious leader. The point, I believe, is in the contrast. So let's think for a few moments about the characters in today's Gospel reading. Luke tells us that Jesus was using the parable to challenge those who view themselves as righteous while regarding others with contempt. Two men got up to, uh, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that is, an important religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing off by himself, reels off to God a list of all the good things he does, comparing them with the shameful behavior of others, whom he describes as thieves, rogues, adulterers, and the likes of a tax collector standing nearby. In sharp contrast, the tax collector pours out his heart to God, beats his breast, acknowledges his sinfulness, and begs for God's mercy. We are told that it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went away put right in the sight of God. Now, there are a few New Testament stereotypes running throughout this parable. The first is that the Pharisees were by nature religious hypocrites who abused their privilege and authority for their own selfish ends. The second is that tax collectors were by nature crooked collaborators with the Roman forces, preparing to extort their own people over and above what the authorities required in order to profit for, it them, uh, for themselves. Like all stereotypes, they offer a limited and distorted view of reality. Not all Pharisees were self-serving and self-righteous hypocrites. Many, if not most, would have been devout men who were sincerely attempting to serve God through their religious beliefs and practices. The Pharisee in the parable, for example, fasted twice a week and gave away a tenth of all his income as a religious commitment. This was no mere lip service to what he believed, but a real attempt to do what he believed his faith required of him. When he gave thanks to God for not being like those such as tax collectors, although buying into a stereotype himself, he might well have been expressing genuinely to God his gratitude for being able to recognize the importance of living his life as a faithful Pharisee, through seeking to keep the law, as opposed to being someone prepared to cheat on others for personal gain. However, regardless of just how impressive the Pharisee might have been in seeking to do the religiously correct things, the parable challenges us to think about the ways in which religion can become an end in itself instead of a means to an end, which is a deeper relationship with God. And this is what we see in the Pharisee's approach to God, whereby he reels off a list of his actions, thinking that God will 
move him into his good books because of that. Unlike the response of the tax collector, we can only assume from the parable that the tax collector referred to had become aware of his own faults and failings. He may have been an honest tax collector who gathered in from people only what was required under the laws of occupation. Perhaps he had become tired of the public's attitude towards tax collectors and fed up with all the negative associations that made tax collector and sinner synonymous. Or maybe, and possibly more likely, he had been on the fiddle and extorting more from people than he was required to, stashing it away in an offshore account, only to become convicted of the immorality of his actions. It certainly seems that something had stirred his heart so strongly that he found himself unable to do anything other than throw himself on God's mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. At that point, there was nothing to obstruct the relationship between the tax collector and God. No position or status, no sense of religious entitlement, no misguided belief that religious practice can, in itself, earn God's favour simply an acknowledgement of his need. While the Pharisee remained stuck in his blind spot, believing that somehow his standing before God was within his power to organise, the tax collector saw the reality, that everything depends on the grace and mercy of God, and that recognition is what changes a person's heart. He was not distracted in any way by the prestige of his position in public perception, nor by the carrying out of particular actions, religious or otherwise, in order to impress God. On the contrary, everything was stripped away from the tax collector, and he knew that God alone could put things right for him. The penny had dropped for him in his heart, perhaps for the first time, that he was accepted and loved by God, not for what he did, but for who he was. This was also evident for Paul, as the writer of the second letter to Timothy conveys. When he speaks about the costly nature of faith and the self-emptying that is part of the package for anyone seeking to follow in Jesus' footsteps, he writes, As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Power, prestige, religious authority, and all such things pale into insignificance alongside the life of selfless service to which we are called, and which stems from our recognition that the foundation of all that we are and do is God's forgiveness and love. In the Pharisee's life was a blockage. He saw his adherence to religious practices and his status as a Pharisee as the basis for his relationship with God, as something to be achieved. The tax collector had not been blinded by the trappings of religion, but came as a result of his very different circumstances to realize that God's love is unconditional in response to the cry of our hearts, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In closing, I return then to where I began and the example of Metropolitan Antony. I firmly believe that the prayer of the tax collector, not the Pharisee, 
was an approach to God that defined Father Anthony's ministry and his understanding of who he was before God, a sinner in need of forgiveness. That enabled him to carry out his high office while avoiding the pitfalls that beset the Pharisee, who saw his religious position as setting himself apart from the likes of tax collectors and sinners. With whom, I wonder, do our own lives resonate with most, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Are we more concerned about justifying ourselves by what we do for God than living our lives in gratitude for what God has done for us? Is our religion what it should be, a means to an end, which is a loving relationship with God and our brothers and sisters, or is it mistakenly an end in itself? Something for us all to ponder, perhaps, in the coming week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.